Welcome back to the Profitable Python. I am your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you'll meet Tom McDougall. Tom is a student at the University of Montreal in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, currently getting his master's in computer science. Right now, he's affiliated with the Institute for Research in Immunology and Cancer at the university with a research project focused on drug discovery using machine learning. He previously completed a bachelor's degree in computer science and a bachelor's degree in medicinal chemistry from the University of New Brunswick in New Brunswick, Canada. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm, really ha I'm happy to be here. Absolutely, man. Uh, before we get a, start talking shop, I, uh, I must know, uh, tell me about this world record you have on planting trees. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. We had a, um, when I was a tree planner, which was one of my, uh, summer, summer jobs when I was doing my undergrad, we had a, uh, a day where we had to plant. Um, it was the, I, th I think the record was the most trees planted by a hundred people. Okay. We couldn't beat the most trees planted by anyone. Uh, it was within an hour. So the most trees planted by a hundred people in an hour. And, wow. uh, yeah, so we all lined up and, uh, and planted as much. And it was, it was, it was basically no different than we did any other day. because uh, <laughs> <laughs> like we all, we, all we did was plant trees all day. So it's not like it was, uh, but they, the, the, the company did make a big uh, deal, but it was cool. Like it was official. Like we had an official start time and, uh, we all planted in the same spot, which we didn't normally do. We were normally all separated. So it was nice. Cool. Heck yeah, man. Well, uh, that's, that's excellent. I wanted to use that as an icebreaker, but seriously, I uh, wanted to take a moment to congratulate you. You placed in the, the coronavirus challenge with your uh, machine learning research, basically. Yeah. So that's amazing, man. I mean, there's so many questions I have, like, you know, where did you get this intuition to like solve it? Because you came up with a synthetic drug that doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's... Yeah. So essentially what I did for that was, um, I aggregated a lot of, of stuff that was already out there. So like these, the, the methods and stuff, that was nothing that I like strictly came up with all on okay. my own. It was just several different methods that people had come up with. Uh, so various labs. So for example, like, uh, there, like you mentioned, there's the generative part, which is where the, the network can generate uh, a neural network can generate uh, samples uh, within some distribution. And that's what, um, that's what we had uh, for this, this generative model, which we can generate new drug samples. Uh, and yeah, that's what, uh, yeah. So it can generate them based on examples, which uh, I had to kind of gather, which wasn't super easy because uh, the, 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 it was for the novel coronavirus. So it was like a new target that had never really been uh, seen before, uh, studied before. So I had to mm -hmm. kind of make some assumptions that it would be similar to some other things, but yeah, hmm. it worked out well. Crazy. Yeah. And just kind of like really, well, I guess you could call it high level, but the, kind of the solution that you created was this is okay. So a constrained graph variational autoencoder. So that's mm -hmm. the generative side. Mm -hmm. I don't know yeah. if there's any color you can put on, on that. Okay. Piece or so constrained graph variational autoencoder. Essentially what that means is it's a, it's based on uh, a 
neural network architecture called a variational autoencoder. And a variational autoencoder um, is, uh, well, it's, it in itself is a, is a special kind of neural network, but essentially what it is is you have a representation of, a, of something. Uh, you could say it's like, a, uh, in tr the traditional me machine learning sense, it would be like a feature vector. It's a little bit different when we're talking about drugs because they're like graphs, but um, or like graph structures. But for normal machine learning, it could be considered a vector. And then through a through a neural network, you can uh, kind of morph that and change it and try and make it uh, in a lower dimensional space. You can think of it kind of like compression. Um, so you would take something that let's say it was a, a hundred dimensional vector. Um, so that would be like maybe uh, if they were, it could be like pixels in a, in a screen and an image. Um, uh, there are different ways to do it, but uh, if that would be an example to think of uh, like a large vector, um, and then you can comp essentially compress it down into a small, smaller vector. And then what you do is you expand it back out and you try to recreate what the original input was. Hmm. And then that um, structure, uh, you can see that you're trying to find the best kind of uh, representation in the middle and what's called the bottleneck dimension. So you're taking something that's big, you're making it a small dimensional representation, which should have less information, but you try to make sure that it has as much information as possible. And then from that, with that, uh, what's called, that's called the latent dimension. And then from that, you can actually uh, generate new samples and, the, that's the variational autoencoder part. And then the constrained graph is simply means that you're generating graphs, um, which are the chemical structures. Uh, so like molecule, you can think of like drawn molecules. Uh, and the constrained part is simply that it uh, obeys the rules of chemistry. So like, um, I don't know how familiar you're petroleum. I'm assuming that you're more familiar with chemistry than... <laughs> Yeah. A, li a little bit. Uh, I dabbled. Uh. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's just like simple, like chemist, normal chemistry rules, like four bonds to a carbon atom and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And then the other, so the other piece was you were generating the models and then, or the, uh, the structures, and then you were classifying them with another. Mm -hmm. uh, an so entire yeah, that, that is a, um, that is a, uh, that was called an edge memory neural network. And I should also say um, in, in keeping with the good uh, academic practices, neither, uh, both of these models uh, were based on papers that I got on code I got off GitHub. So you should definitely, you can check out my submission for that competition mm -hmm. or, and then you can see the references there because this is, these are ideas that like I incorporated, but again, they were published, published work. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, the, this edge memory neural network is the predictive model. And so what that does is that is just a kind of um, a prediction network that looks at uh, the edges. So again, we're talking, we're looking at these uh, chemicals as graphs um, and the edge memory neural network part just simply means that we're looking at the edges. So the bonds, so you're just considering the, the chemical bonds instead of really considering the, the nodes, which are, which would be the atoms. If we're talking about a chemical graph, um, we're looking at the, uh, edges and we're seeing how the edges, uh, and we essentially use the edges and characterizing the edges, um, in a special way to, to, uh, be able to predict, to get a good representation of the graph. And then from that representation, we can make predictions. 
Okay, excellent. And then uh, the last part was there was some sort of computation with how they would dock with the coronavirus? Mm -hmm. Yes. So about it's not as docking with uh, the coronavirus, but a specific protein in the coronavirus. Okay. okay. So the coronavirus is a large construct of, of many proteins, um, but in order for it to replicate, it needs to use this specific one called a protease. And so the goal of this competition was to inhibit that protease. And so in order to test whether or not um, it's inhibiting it, the generated compounds or the, the, these compounds that are predicted to, uh, to work at inhibiting this protease in order to test it, since I don't have, we don't have access to a, a, like a, bio, a biochemistry lab, mm-hmm. um, this docking is kind of a surrogate task for that. And what, how the docking works is it is just essentially a very complex physical simulation of the, uh, of the protein. So it's the large protein. And then the ligand is just a small little, um, structure that is kind of fit in and then it's fit in different. The computer iteratively tries different uh, positions, uh, in the, what's called the binding site. And then it finds one, it evaluates the score at each point and then the lowest score it returns and it shows you the structure. Uh, it essentially, what it does is just considers the, uh, bonds as kind of like springs and, uh, the, it considers like the atoms as point charges and it just try and finds the, try to find the best, uh, the local minimum of the uh, energy in the, in that space. Amazing. Yeah. So again, congratulations. You, uh, <laughs> you're like going down in history as like, you know, throwing down on this and, and if it's I'm, fun. yeah. And if I'm hearing you correctly, you, uh, you basically sourced all of, of, uh, what was available, uh, f- like open source and, mm-hmm. and kind of created the solution. So mm-hmm. for, like by compiling these other sources. So mm-hmm. yeah, kind of the, the real superpower that I see if I had to pick like the one here mm-hmm. that you have, you have the ability to go out there and kind of like pick off of the menu and, uh-huh. and compile these things. Like that's a real superpower, man. And I was just wondering like, how do you, how do you even go about like, I mean, was Google your friend through this whole thing or did you, For sure. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Google is a huge resource for this. And then uh, GitHub, you can just searching for get searching on GitHub is good. Um, mm-hmm. But Google Scholar is mainly is my main source of uh, for this competition. It was my main source of, of finding these methods. And then also okay. for um, uh, for my, like my own research when I do similar stuff to work on a research project. Um, it's, it's definitely Google scholar. Google scholar lets you not only search, it's like a really good for searching, um, for papers, but then it's also good for searching papers related to another paper. So if you search for one, you pick one and you can search for other ones related to that one. It's, it's good. It lets you uh, build like the kind of the web web of science. So like how things are related to each other. Mm-hmm. How would you, like, if you had to kind of make like a pie chart, how much time is kind of spent like scouring the internet and then the other part, like actually developing a solution or is there more pieces to the pie that I didn't touch on? Um, well, there's, there was uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, um, sure. Getting the, like finding the, finding the papers was probably, I don't know, 15%. Um, getting the data, the compiling the data set, 
Mm-hmm. That was actually a significant portion. So that would be like close, like 20, 25% because just uh, looking online for, because once you have like the, these methods, uh, you really need a lot of these methods are data driven. And this is a situation um, in a new kind of um, situation where, where there's no previous work on this. It's, it's a novel coronavirus that doesn't exist before. Um, there's really, it's, all these approaches are data-driven approaches. They need data to function properly. They need data to function well. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, uh, or at least in this situation, they don't, like th- that data isn't there. So in finding uh, similar uh, viruses, similar uh, proteins that have data that we can use and kind of hope that it's the same or infer that it will be similar, mm-hmm. that was a big portion. Um, getting the... Us, yeah, and then the rest would be yeah, implementing the um, implementing the solutions, and then uh, and then doing the docking studies. Uh, that was non-trivial, but uh, there's some good tutorials out there for that. So, excellent. And uh, for someone that maybe, um, well, I know that this crops up a lot in data science. It's like this domain expertise. So, how mm-hmm. much of your uh, medicinal chemistry mm-hmm. and computer science background has kind of been like if, like if you didn't have that background? could you even have done this or would it have taken like five times as long? Like, what do you think about that? Um, I think, I think for, th- for this specific competition, I mean, it, it's difficult to imagine not having knowledge that I already have. Like that's a, it's a, essentially a paradox. Uh-huh. Uh, but I would like to think that uh, like I didn't, it didn't take a ton of domain knowledge to do it. Cause like I said, I was just looking at these, uh, these, this published work already. So okay. that's good. Um, that, but also that being said, like I, I knew where to look on Google scholar and that kind of, that kind of took previous knowledge. And so there was, there were a few other things, but like, I think that it, um, I think that it was, uh, definitely, it, it, it took, it took some, but like, I don't think that that's discouraging to, to anyone else. And I think that there, like, there were other people in the competition, uh, who didn't have domain knowledge and, uh, it, uh, it, the domain knowledge kind of anchors you in uh, in the whole area. It kind of like, it lets you know that uh, there's not some big piece of the puzzle that you're just not getting because mm, you kind of, okay. you're kind of centered, but, um, but specifically for the specific needs of the competition. No, I, I, I don't think that it was particularly uh, useful. Okay. Excellent. And uh, okay. So that, that was like the main uh, shop talk there. I know we'll, we'll hit some other stuff there, but I, I'd feel guilty if we went too far into this without acknowledging uh, your amazing accomplishments. So again, congratulations. Thank, yeah, man. Th- thanks a lot. Yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was good. I was happy to be able to, happy to have the opportunity, happy that it uh, aligned so well with uh, kind of the stuff I already did. That was another reason why it went so well. But yeah. Yeah, excellent. So, and I want to kind of touch on that. When did you first become interested in developing new therapies in a data-driven way? So I, I started my undergrad doing this kind of double major of computer science and chemistry and not really like combining them because in the beginning when you're learning the basics of each one of them, there's no room to combine them because that kind of crossing over happens at, at a more advanced level. Mm. Um, so uh, just learning basics, chemistry, basics, computer science, not really thinking I would ever combine them, maybe even thinking I would choose one over the other and, and not really pursue the other one. Mm. Um, and that kind of went on and, and that's kind of what I was 
doing, I was kind of veering more towards chemistry. I, I liked chemistry a lot. I was working in, in chemistry labs uh, in the summer and, and it was working well. And then I worked in a, um, in a municipal chemistry lab. So that's doing uh, wet lab synthesis. So like actually benchtop uh, synthesis. And uh, so the exact details of that were to, were designing new like uh, cancer drugs, but like doing, so you'd, you'd get a, you'd sit down in the morning, you'd like plan out by hand, like a synthesis that you would do. And then you would go into the lab and then physically, physically do it. Hmm. Um, and that was going well. And that was actually, that was at the same Institute where I am now. Um, but only in a, in a separate platform. Um, and then the, at the Institute, that's where I met my current supervisor, who is a, a very, very skilled, like he's a bioinformatician, Dr. Sebastian Lemire. He's a bioinformatician and he's really, really, really good with like deep learning and, and machine learning and stuff. And uh, he, so we, so we chatted about this and when we, he interviewed me and we talked about me, me starting a master's program doing uh, applying these two fields. So his expertise in, in machine learning and deep learning applied to biology, and then my expertise and experience in, in chemistry, and then also another, um, another uh, chemist at the Institute. So uh, Anne Marigné, who's my co-supervisor, and she's just strictly only a uh, chemist. Uh, she's a medicinal chemist. So it's kind of like this, uh, my goal right now is to kind of bridge the gap between these two these two fields that, uh, that don't really mesh well. They, it's, uh, it's, it's tough getting these two uh, fields to kind of work, work together, but, uh, mm -hmm. it's good. Excellent. So you just got exposure to these amazing humans and, and before you know it, you're uh, like waist deep or neck deep. Like yeah, how, yeah, how deep exactly. are you right now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's basically how it was. It was just, uh, it was like, uh, yeah, it was like a, fell into it. It was just like, uh, it was, didn't really expect to have a, wasn't even sure if I wanted to do a, a master's program, but, um, mm -hmm. then it, it was offered and it was there and it was both of the few, uh, what I was studying. So I said, yeah. I yeah. That's, that's awesome, man. Uh, what would you consider your first success as like a data driven? Do, do you classify yourself as a medicinal chemist or as I'm, I'm, um, I would be, I think I would call myself a, a chemo informatician. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's not a, that's not a common, it's, it's a, cause well, there's a field of computational chemistry, okay. uh, which I wouldn't really put myself in. That's the people who do like quantum mechanical calculations and stuff. And I don't do that. Um, I do like you said, kind of data driven chemistry. Mm -hmm. uh, so like bioinformatics, but for chemistry. So okay. Excellent. Um, so yeah, let me rephrase the question then, I guess. <laughs> what would you consider your first success as a uh, chemo informatician? So um, that's, yeah. So before I, um, yeah. So starting off at the, doing this um, program, I uh, started to, I knew that I me and my supervisor had kind of agreed that this kind of area was where I was going to work. And then we talked about like, uh, what kind of more specifically, more, more specific stuff I could do. Um, and then there was, there was one approach that, that we're, that we're, that we're looking into, um, where we take, uh, individual instead of, so the traditional machine learning approaches, you have many, many training examples and you have many, many target values. And then you're trying to train on those training examples, uh, and then evaluate 
the loss with the target example or the target values to kind of make something that can do this target to or this uh, data to target kind of relation and what can do that better and better. Um, so what the idea that I had, and this was kind of based on my experience in medicinal chemistry is normally when I, at least, and when other chemists look at uh, a series of molecules and they want to kind of get an idea of uh, how the, the area around those molecules. And, and when I say area, I mean like if you were to change something on those molecules, how would, uh, it change. Uh, you normally look at them in pairs. So you look, you compare these two, you compare these two, you compare these two. So that was my first data-driven kind of idea was to bring that intuition in from, from medicinal chemistry to kind of compare uh, two like molecules in a kind of two by two uh, fashion. Hmm. Excellent. Um, yeah, it's uh, it was it was something that I really wanted to bring to my uh, comp my competition submission because that would be something that I kind of came up with myself, but uh, didn't have enough time. The uh, the competition was only two weeks long, so I didn't hmm. get a chance. But. Wow, that's I mean that's amazing just uh, just cranking out that 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 kind of work in two weeks. Um, so how has focusing on the fundamentals served you as a data professional? So the fundamentals being just uh, uh, fundamentals, I guess, of uh, data, I, I guess you could call it data science. Um, but this, you could kind of take the question, like <laughs> if, if, if it's, um, you are a data professional. So okay. the fundamentals that you focus on, how has that kind of like served you as your current role right now? Oh, okay. So yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I guess focusing like a lot on like base statistics kind of helps. So like never underestimating the power of like histograms and like, uh, like these kind of basic data science, because everyone wants to put in machine learning in their stuff that they're doing. And everyone wants to say all this stuff, but there's a lot of like base core, like uh, toolbox kind of uh, statistical tests and, and data data visualization approaches. And I guess visualization would be a big one because mm. who, who cares how good your results are if you can't really show like a, like a good visualization to show kind of how your results are, then it's, uh, it's kind of lost. Hmm. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah. But. Yeah. I think so. Uh, so it's like visualization and then these fundamentals of statistics and then yeah. like yeah. what, what about like the, the data, like janitorial work? Okay. So yeah, that, um, that stuff, uh, that, um, yeah, I guess, uh, like I do spend a lot, I still spend a lot of time like uh, standardizing many different data sets and, uh, different, uh, units and, and diff like across many different kinds of data sets. And, um, uh, as far as fundamentals that I employ to do that, um, I'm not quite sure. Um, yeah, I know base statistics again are, are really good, like standardizing uh, values across like having zero mean uh, unit, unit variance, or that's kind of important to, uh, important to prediction, important to uh, com comparison between, between different data, data mm -hmm. sets and stuff like that. 
Excellent. And the, uh, the pack, so are you doing this mainly in Python or yeah. is there other programming? Okay. Um, yeah, no, ma basically completely in Python. I've had conversations with my supervisor about how, like maybe if we want to do a production level thing, we might move to something like, like we might move to C plus plus or something, but, um, like as far as prototyping right now, basically, yeah. All Python. Okay. Is there any specific packages that are really serving you well? I'd imagine there's like the pandas and the yeah, TensorFlow. Pandas for sure. and that sort of uh, yeah. So I use, I use, I tend to use PyTorch more than TensorFlow just because okay. it's what I have exposure from, from classes. Mm -hmm. uh, so that the, my knowledge is a little bit more there, but yeah, you're right. Um, just those two, uh, NumPy, uh, SciPy. NumPy is a big one because uh, it gives you like really solid array um, manipulation in in Python, which doesn't have it like natively. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, just having that good solid, being able to manipulate arrays quite well and do things functionally is is very very nice. Awesome, yeah. And uh, I was I know you had mentioned this briefly earlier, but why are chemical compounds difficult to deploy machine learning on? Um, yeah, so the main thing is that they are, so when machine learning methods work very well on a fixed size representation, so where every training example is going to be the same size. Mm -hmm. um, so if you think of images, all the same, like normally machine learning methods, you're talking about the same sized images, uh, num number of pixels by number of pixels, same size. And then mm -hmm. even for things like um, when you're talking about sentences in natural language processing, uh, those can be different sizes, but the machine learning algorithm normally either chops it off or fills in blank characters to kind of make, to standardize all of their sizes. Um, but for, uh, but for chemical structures, that's where it, you're talking about a graph that can be not only different sizes, but also amorphous and like difficult to kind of, um, difficult to show because like, for example, some humans have a hard time telling if two chemical structures are in fact the same structure or if they're different because you mm -hmm. kind of have to align them on top of each other and think about them that way. Um, so there's, there's some considerations like that uh, for like, for example, you can't just have simply a picture of the, of the structure because like I said, you could have one that's one picture and then one that's mirrored and is the other picture. And then those two, in picture form, they're different, but in chemical form, they would be the same, just mirrored. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some considerations like that that need to be taken. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that sounds really tricky. Like you, it's almost like you have to go through an iterative approach just to. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. It's like like pre yeah, yeah. pre processing to a whole new level. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> uh, yeah, sure, and they. Um, yeah, so there's there's there are approaches to do that. Um, some of them some of them transform the chemical structures into strings. Uh, that's like a common way to do it. Um, okay. And then there's uh, convolutions, so graph convolutions type thing, and that's that's kind of a good way it's, uh, to standardize uh, some sizes because you essentially just look for substructures across the molecule. You kind of pass over a, a kind of a search search window mm -hmm. of the feature map. So yeah. Hmm. Yeah, wow, man. There's, there's ways to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Um, what would you say? I don't know. I don't know if there's an answer to this, but I figured I'd take a stab at it. What uh -huh. is the big domino to knock over where an AI chemist could actually surpass 
a medicinal chemist's ability and intuition? Um, uh, that's a good, that is a good question. Um, and I don't, and I wish, I don't know if that's, that could be five years away or it could be 20 years away. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, but I think that, um, um, probably when it comes to like, uh, reaction, uh, based things. So right now when, when people do these kinds of, uh, chemical work, they're not really looking at like how can, uh, how can we incorporate reactions? Um, so like when, when a chemist thinks about compounds, they're thinking about it from very, from many different angles simultaneously. So they're thinking about what does it look like? How hard would it be to make? How would you make it? Um, what would happen if you reacted it with this? What would happen if you reacted it with this other thing? So you're considering it not just like as a picture and a static thing or a static graph. Um, you're thinking of it as like this, this thing that can change and move and, and, and things like that. Hmm. So that might be a, a good way. Like that might be something that could take if you had a system that was simultaneously thinking about these complex networks of, uh, uh different things. And I guess another thing uh, beyond that would be, um, I, I had this idea while I was talking uh, that um, if you could have like some a system that could um, do like quantum mechanical calculations of the molecules as it's considering them, hmm. that would be something. And this is not something that I'm an expert in the, these quantum mechanical calculations things, even though I've brought it up a couple times so far. <laughs> um, I uh, I'm just aware of that, and I know that there's just a lot of a lot of stuff that goes on at that level that uh, I don't mm. understand. And, and that's part of the reason why uh, I think that oh, like it opens up a, a new door, or like you say, domino effect where you can just have these like all sorts of new kinds of uh, analysis and things that we just, that can surpass a uh, uh, human. But also if you think about, um, if you think about other tasks where human level performance has been surpassed. So like ImageNet is mm -hmm. an image classification task where um, I'm not sure how long ago it would have been four or five years ago, um, maybe even less that human level was, was surpassed, but it wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't like this big uh, push over that, that uh, made it beat human level. It's just human level. All it was, was just another bar on the, the bar chart and slowly year after year, it got better two or three percent at a time, two or three percent at a time, two or three percent at a time until it was, until it was higher. Hmm. So uh, I don't know if it'll be this big dramatic thing. I'd like to think it would be because it would probably unlock a lot of therapies for a lot of people. But um, yeah, it hmm. could just, it could just be this slow, slow rate, slow advance. Yeah. That's, I know that the quantum uh, quantum AI is kind of like, like people are talking about that as like the future or what the, yeah. what they're excited for in the future. So Anyway, thanks for bringing that up. I, uh, I, this whole conversation is a little intimidating for me. Like I, I've done enough research to kind of like, I, I, by no means am I pretending to know, uh, what I'm, what I'm, we're, we're all learning here. I think it was yeah, kind of like, sure. the, so, <laughs> but, uh, anyway, th I really appreciate your insight on that. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so where, uh, where is machine learning being underutilized in drug and therapy research, do you think? Um, so 
I, I would guess like um, just on like on specific drug discovery teams and like what I've been exposed to. And I guess I don't know if this is uh, ubiquitous throughout the um, throughout the industry, but like in when you're talking about these large drug corporations um, from what I I believe, I think they're getting more and more warm to the idea of using data-driven approaches now. But mm-hmm. um, uh, I think that there's a little bit of, especially like down at the bottom level where there's like medicinal chemists and stuff, they don't want to, they don't typically want to like work because like it's not their expertise to use computers and like have to interact with the uh, interact with like a, a synthesis planner, like programs and stuff like they might have a few programs for chemistry that they use that they like. Mm-hmm. Um, but then beyond that, like it's difficult to ask someone to go outside of their comfort zone or domain to do these different things. So um, I know that, uh, but so from there, knowing that, um, there's also been a few different companies that have said, we're going to do this differently. We're going to use AI throughout. Um, and so they like a group of, of computer scientists, they will go and start a pharma company. Um, and that's happened a couple of times. So one of the examples is benevolent AI, which I think is in Singapore. Um, and they um, make up uh, like they have compounds that they, um, that they make up like using this AI data driven approaches from the bottom up. Um, hmm. So, yeah. So I would say that they use it like adequately, but uh, maybe the other companies, maybe they could learn from that or I don't know, um, like uh, incorporate things more and more. And I know that for, well, for example, um, in the court, in the programs that I've been involved with, there are some people who have um, like, there are some uh not machine learning, but medicinal chemistry groups that will have uh, a like kind of a, a person, a computational person added on and mm. uh, his or her like responsibility will be to like kind of supplement the group's uh, findings with uh, com- various computational things. So they'll do like the modeling and the docking and the, and the machine learning stuff. But even on that level, they, they might not have a lot of experience with machine learning. So I think uh, availability of tools um, is probably like the limiting factor. Hmm. And then what, and then it sounds like what you're also saying, a lot of people are just not deploying these tools in general. Like, like you could multiply the, this type of activity by a hundred and it would, it would like, that's where the opportunity is like, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's something that, yeah. And th- I mean, like, like I said, I, I can't really speak from like f- on behalf of these companies cause like I don't work there and I don't really, really know for sure they might do this and keep it a secret. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that uh, it, uh, I think that it would, yeah, be able to, uh, yeah, maybe they don't scale it up because maybe on a, on an industrial level, it, it doesn't work as well as they, uh, they thought it would. Um, but uh, like, um, yeah. But uh, it's it is a complicated field, and mm-hmm. uh, and these adding these systems into something that's already complicated, and adding another comp- something else that's quite complicated, uh, but in a completely different way, and uh, trying to mash those together, and then expecting if someone it's difficult when someone understands half of it and doesn't understand the other half. Yeah, have have you heard of the uh, the Zen of Python? No, I haven't. So I, I think I think if you go to your uh, like your REPL and you just type in import this, you get the Zen of Python. It's like this little Easter egg. 
but one of the the items of the Zen of Python, I think is like simple is better than complex. There's like a bunch of these other things, but kind of what you're talking about reminded me of that. It's like, yeah, like you take this really complex thing and you mix this other complex thing and it could be a lifetime and you're still trying to get results. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So yeah, I say import this uh, if you or the audience hasn't done that yet. Uh, Cool, man. So um, what are the uh, principles of reinforcement learning that make it a common tool for drug development projects? Um, Okay, that's a good question. So I think uh, reinforcement learning in particular uh, is because that's kind of the approach that a lot of that's you can you can frame the drug development uh, process as a machine learning or as a reinforcement learning process very easily. So mm-hmm. in uh, reinforcement learning, it's like a you're talking about a agent, an AI agent uh, that is in a space, and then it it makes certain actions, and then it gets rewards based on those actions, and then it's more likely to do actions that will give it more rewards or better reward. And so that's kind of what we're dealing with in uh, the drug development situation where we have these compounds and we're trying to make or synthesize or or come up with brand new compounds that will uh, satisfy some reward function. And that reward function is their binding affinity to a protein or various other uh, effects. Maybe you want their solubility to be higher. You want them to be less toxic to people. Um, so all of these objectives can contribute to the reward function. So you want to take actions, so make changes to the molecule that will um, cha- that will give you a positive reward or like a good reward. Mm, excellent. And uh, regarding the uh, meta learning, I was curious, what applications do you see for meta learning in drug and therapy research? Yeah. So meta learning is would be the the situation where we have. Um, uh, a we have many different data sets and we have many different uh, tasks and then meta learning is kind of an overarching thing above that where the input into the machine learning algorithm is no longer data it's data it's a full data set and a task and then we train on all these full data sets and all these tasks and then we have this learner that can take a brand new task and a brand new data set, a task that is never seen before, and then it can be able to uh, be able to look at that and look at the task and come up with good results. So how that applies to uh, machine or how that applies to therapy is therapies is we have um, there's many many different protein targets. So these uh, there's specific proteins in the body or in the body of of uh, pathogens in our body that um, we want to target, we want to inhibit with a, a compound. So we want to put a compound uh, and kind of fit it into the, the protein and make the protein stop working or make the protein work even more or to make it send a signal. Um, so each co- so by getting these compounds to bind to each of those proteins, each one of those tasks, so binding to each of those proteins is kind of like a different task. So if we can make this meta-learning approach where it can be given a bunch of data and uh, protein and then it knows from all these other proteins and it knows from all these other tasks that it's done exactly what it needs to do for this brand new task. That would be uh, an approach. Hmm. 
it sounds, I mean, it just like things were complicated enough before we opened <laughs> up that can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, I don't mean, I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to gatekeep this kind of knowledge in any way. I can, I'll, I can explain it to the best of my ability I, before. Like even I, like I said, I'm still just uh, learning this as much as everyone else. Now, it, it was like, you know, a, a, a joke basically. Cause it's like, um, like a nerd joke i guess but um the yeah like meta learning it just sounds like a whole like you could almost specialize in that or are they trying to automate that somehow or like yeah yeah, it just seems like you'd need so many people with specialties to just really uh do this right or or can one person even you know i guess you could just try as one person to do all this stuff or? yeah yeah i mean well that's the thing that's kind of like it's a, it's definitely a c it's like a pandora's box of just you open up you get past machine learning and then like the word the phrase machine learning and then it's just all of these <laughs> other things and you just have no idea and each each one is more complicated than the last it's yeah quite a yeah it's a lot so so where would you sit with the meta learning thing it seems like it's super helpful because you can aggregate all these disparate data sources and treat it as like this thing that then you can pipe into like your original workflows. So it sounds like super helpful. Yeah, exactly. And it, uh, yeah. And I think it is right now. It's like a, it's, it's, it's still in its infancy. Like it's, it's very, it's new. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not really like, I don't think there's very many things that are like pushing it into production or anything, but yeah, you're right. Like being able to, um, like an early version of, of that kind of thing is to kind of train a general. So like they have these huge language models to just train this gigantic language model. Um, and then kind of take the top layers off and then put on a kind of a task that you want to learn. So if a different organization wants a different task to be done by this big network, they just pop off the, the other task that was on it and put on their own task. And then they can utilize like the huge machinery that is this big, this big model uh, Mm. and then do it for their task. So yeah, it's, it's definitely like a, uh, it's a Holy grail of, uh, of, of (laughs) the future in the future for like, yeah, machine learning. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, what modeling techniques would someone need to specialize in in the future to help mitigate challenges discovering compounds and therapies that are really expensive to make and test? Yeah, so I guess like these kind of, they, that's basically kind of like the approach to my research now is that every time you have a, basically, well, when you do this like iterative drug development process you're kind of looking at new compounds to uh to test against these protein targets and so if you um every time you want to test one if you want to physically test it you got to send it away to a lab and then they run this biochemical experiment on it that takes time and it also takes like money in in like the different parts to uh, like the to synthesize, take the reagents, like how you synthesize it, the time for the chemist to do it, the time for the guy, the person who's testing it, um, all that stuff takes time. So if you can even just trim off like one or two compounds that you don't need to make, like using, if you made a system that could just identify the worst 2% of, of a big batch of compounds and that you're saving 2% that need to be made, 2% that need to be sent, 2% that need to be tested, 
um, if it's going to end up being a, a negative result anyway, then if we can trim those out um, using software, then it's uh, it's uh, a free uh, free information. For that. Yeah. yeah, that's so. I mean, maybe this is just kind of my ignorance in the in this area, but does that is that like a job killer? Is that what I is that what um, I just heard? Or are people uh, excited about this on from all angles? I I don't know. I don't know if it's it's difficult to say. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure people could see it that way, but I, I think I see it as like a, an enhancer. Yeah. So it'll, it'll just make things go a lot faster. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's cause yeah. I'm yeah. I, it's difficult to say. I, I, yeah. You'd need to talk to it like an economist to be able to tell you this. Yeah. I think there's room for all the, all the different various fields to, uh, to feel, see some, impact in this similar kind of way. Yeah. I think, man, I think you hit that, the nail on the head. Like there's a lot of fear out there with this technology. Maybe people don't really understand it, but bottom line is we'll probably be able to move faster, be able to save people money, maybe reduce the, the cost mm-hmm. for these drugs, which then mm-hmm. ultimately like extends lifespans. And like, mm-hmm. so maybe just don't fear the, uh, you know, it, it's, it's probably a good thing, but yeah, yeah. I, hear, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, how has your mindset changed since you discovered that new ideas come eventually? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's I love that. Yeah. That's the something that, that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. That, uh, my, my pre-interview was that like one of my points was that, uh, something that I've learned of course being, uh, that good ideas or new ideas come eventually. And yeah. that's something that, cause you can get stuck in these ruts where you just like spend a really long time doing the same thing. And, and you just don't, you, you think that it's like, uh, you're spinning your wheels and it feels like you're spinning your wheels. And I felt that, and, uh, it's just, it's a difficult feeling. Um, and just mm-hmm. kind of, uh, this is something my supervisor told me when I was in my undergrad, he's just like, uh, if you like, he's like, you come up, you've come up with ideas before and I know it. And it's just time now. If you've done it once, you can do it again. Uh, and that was, yeah. it's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a settling feeling. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to stop working and that I see how that, that might be a slippery slope if you thought that, Oh, I'm going to think of it eventually. I don't have to work right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, just keeping at it has, has something that's kind of, uh, keeps me grounded. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a new, well, I, I've never, I don't think I've heard those words in that <laughs> order before. So to me, it's new, uh, but it's kind of like that whole, it plays along with the whole persistence thing. And that's, that's really cool. Yeah, it's yeah. like, be persistent, sure. you know, there's no guarantees, but like you said, it's like the settling thing. Like, you know, just, just keep at it because yeah. you, if you did it once, you can probably do it again, but yeah, yeah, yeah that's sure. awesome, man. Um, how has your decision to compare yourself to only yourself served you (laughs) yeah so yeah this is something that is that i've had yeah troubled with um in the last little while is that uh the um so kind of like moving away or like moving out of like my kind of like the area where i went to did my undergrad Mm -hmm. um moving to a larger city with a lot more students and a lot more very 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 bright students has kind of made me um not look so much more at school about kind of look at, uh, which is something that I, I, I spent a lot of time just kind of like looking at, um, like as kind of like what I'm good at. Um, 
it's made me look at other things. And then that's, that kind of relates back to the competition. So I thought like the reason why I like really wanted to do the competition, really tried hard uh, to, to do well in that competition was because I was like, this is something that is completely separate from, from uh, school that I want to do because this is something that I think I can do well at. And this is something that um, it's kind of like my own motivation and my own, like uh, I'm not comparing it against anyone that like at least, it's not a class-based thing. I'm not going to get a mark to mm-hmm. compare against someone. Like, it's just something that I want to do because it looks like fun. Yeah. It looks like something that, um, it com- it adds, it adds more things to kind of like a the mosaic of me. That's not just school. So mm-hmm. I don't know. that's yeah. my own personal, that's getting more into like my own personal philosophy type stuff. But, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it's it's good to go there. I like to open up those cans of worms. Like I, I constantly like I catch myself doing that. Where uh, like obviously it's not you can only compare yourself against basically your version of yourself yesterday. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a good way to put it. And really, like I, I catch myself periodically, like you know, not doing that, and I have to kind of reel myself back in and be like, look, like everybody's unique. You don't know you don't know how much time like people put into like whatever success that you're seeing out there. And so it's really like, you could really just go rotten if, if you don't maintain this sort of mentality. Exactly. So when you shared that, I was like, man, that is spot on. Like that is definitely the right attitude to have. Uh, So keep up with that, man. That's awesome. Yeah, It takes, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it takes a while to build that kind of uh, that image. And I mean, that uh, kind of self-motivation, self-image type thing. But yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, I, I can, I'm already reaping the rewards from, uh, <laughs> from doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And for anybody else out there that's struggling with that, it's certainly something to strive for because you're just, you, you're a, a bigger, brighter version of yourself, I guess. Like you are, you're a happy camper with, with, <laughs> since, yeah, since you've sure. kind of developed that. Awesome. Um, alrighty. So, Let's see your, uh, your message to your younger self is that research takes time. Yeah, this, yeah. So I was wondering if you could kind of explain that a little more. I thought this was pretty cool. So yeah, this kind of, this loops, this loops back to what we were talking about earlier with, uh, the ideas come eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, so like I, it just, it takes time and it's just, you want to kind of focus on, um, like if you're, if you're thinking about the end goal, and you're always just thinking about um, uh, like, oh, I want, I can't wait until I'm done this degree or I can't wait until I'm done this project or this thing. Then you're, you, I find at least for me, um, I might skip steps in getting there or I might kind of just like try and hit fast forward to try and get through the days and, and get there. But um, I find that if you do that, then you just kind of do a, a sloppier job along the way and you get a really enjoy what you're doing like at the moment on your way there. Um, and that'll help you build this like kind of foundation so that the end will not only feel just as good as if you rush there, but it'll, you'll have all of this stuff along the way to kind of show for it as well. Mm-hmm. Well, as, as far as like learning new concepts and stuff. So you're, what you're talking about is like you're working on some sort of project and then before you know it, you're kind of like, Oh, I'm re- kind of going down the rabbit hole on something here. So, yeah, yeah. Like, it has that in once you kind of reel yourself back in and you're like, okay, proceed, you know, uh, 
has your understanding of things become better or do you have like a higher quality learning experience or is it just like you have to take that time in order to hit the finish line and, and be successful or kind of, I, I don't know like how you can yeah. put some color on that. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a great question because it can feel like you're not making progress if you're like spending a lot of time, like, um, setting your roots, I guess mm -hmm. you're not really growing if you're setting your roots, but that's all important stuff. And like the growing process, like you really got to get out there and learn all of this kind of these little intricate things, even though it doesn't feel like you're advancing in, in one direction, um, you're getting a really good base in a different area. And, and so, yeah, it can, it can feel discouraging and I've felt that, but like it, uh, it can really, uh, it's important when you get the, get the whole kind of settling feeling of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's powerful, man. Thanks for sharing that. So, uh, yeah, after this one, you're basically off the hook with like tricky questions. Uh, <laughs> okay, sure. what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? The best piece of advice I've ever received. Um, I mean, we already talked about the, the good, like the ideas, uh, take time. Um, mm -hmm. that was, that was a good piece of advice. Uh, I needed that at the time. Um, yeah, I, I would, I would probably just go with that one. Um, because it's just like, it, it kind of encapsulates like the, uh, the persistence thing, like you mentioned before, and just mm -hmm. this, uh, this idea that you can just, you can get there if you, uh, or like if you've, if you've done it before and this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean like you've had like the greatest idea or you've had like this, this revolutionary idea. Um, if you've just like had like any kind of advance that you've been proud of, then you can, you can probably do it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the, uh, law of compounding, uh, you know, you get enough of those and before you know it, you're kicking ass anyway. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, okay. So what is the most important book to read in 2020? This could be a technical book or a non-technical book. Um, uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, 1984 is good. Uh, that's more and more relevant every year. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of an easy one though. Uh, and uh, it might be a little too political. So, uh, I'll, uh, um, yeah, uh, yeah, that, 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 that'd be a good one to go with. And, uh, yeah. So like, as far as, uh, technical books, um, like, uh, the, the deep learning book is great. Um, I'm the, the one that came out of, uh, university of Montreal. Um, you, if you, if anyone's interested in, um, uh, machine or like machine learning, deep learning, uh, type thing, I would recommend it. It's, uh, it's free, uh, online. Just, uh, I think it's, uh, the deep learning book.org. Um, and it's just like, uh, and it's, uh, it's very readable. Like it's very much like you, uh, it's, it's not like this, it's not buried in technical jargon where they're trying to gatekeep the area from everyone else and saying, no, this is us. You have to be a, masters of math student like you have to have a phd in math to understand this no it's just like it's really open and kind of just uh, talks about different things uh, i'd recommend hmm. the, the deep learning book cool yeah thanks for sharing that and uh regarding like uh programming languages is there is there some that maybe we should have on our radar going forward kind of in the space that you work in um python is kind of like the 800 yeah. pound gorilla but is there mm -hmm. some other ones that are kind of uh, Python is good. Uh, I don't really have, I can't really speak from experience, uh, 
for this, but I've heard that that Swift is gaining some kind of momentum in the machine learning uh, community. Okay. So like, I think uh, TensorFlow, TensorFlow I know has a, has a switch or has a, a Swift library um, for TensorFlow. Hmm. And I don't know, I, I've heard this, but I, I guess I'm not sure, sure exactly sure at the moment, but I think TensorFlow is moving to support Swift as it's like primary oh. uh, language. So I'm like not, I'm not 100% first. sure on that. Yeah, uh, I'm not 100% sure on that. But yeah, hmm. uh, so Swift would be, yeah, this like, so that's, some, that's, that's what's on my radar for my next language to learn, but yeah. Yeah, awesome. Um, what is, so we've opened up a bunch of can of worms here. <laughs> Let's reel it back in. What is sure. the message that you want people to leave this interview with? Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've talked about it a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I guess a good idea or like, um, yeah, just persistence when it comes to all these kinds of things. So like, uh, whether it's a brand new kind of, uh, brand new field that you're interested in that you think might be really complicated, uh, just persistence in learning about that. Or if you, uh, are kind of in a rut and you haven't thought of a great idea in, in the particular area that you're working right now, um, uh, just persistence in that to kind of go through would be awesome. Solid advice. Yeah, that's awesome. Tom. Okay. Where, where can they connect with you? What do they need to do immediately after they finish listening to the podcast? What is your call to action here? Um, oof, <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, you can, <laughs> you find me on LinkedIn, uh, Thomas McDougall, my full, my full name, Thomas. Um, mm -hmm. you can connect with me there if you're interested or have any more questions, I guess, for me. And then also my, uh, coronavirus competition, uh, submission is on GitHub. Um, T MacDo four, I think is my uh, GitHub username, but yeah. So mm -hmm. check me out on, on those avenues. Ask me any questions you have. I'm happy to help. Yeah, we'll make sure that they have links to all that. Do we send them okay. to your to your YouTube? You kicked it off with, you've got like more views than I do and you just kick it <laughs> off with like, good good for you, man. That's awesome. Should we send yeah. them there too or? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's, okay. uh, it's more, it's the very specific to the competition. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my two videos, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, sure. It's, you got to start somewhere and you got some traction. So I'm, I mean, I think it's, I think it's awesome. Man. <laughs> it's really inspiring what you've done. So oh, thank you. Well. Yeah. Uh, well, with that being said, I guess we will uh, talk to you folks next time. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Yep.